from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. And I'm joined this week uh, by a group of guests. Uh, we're going to be talking about the San Antonio Museum of Science and Technology. And no, this is not the School of Science and Technology off of I-410. Uh, it's the Museum of Science and Technology out at Port San Antonio. Uh, we've had um, Jim Perschbach, who's the CEO of the port, on our program before. You could listen to the replay of that on any of your podcasting services out there. If you don't find us on your favorite podcasting service, reach out to us on Twitter and we will get you a t-shirt as well as getting it added to your service of choice. If you uh, are going to stick with us on the radio here tonight, uh, you'll be able to hear uh, all about this from David Monroe, who founded the museum and contributed almost all of the exhibits in there. David will tell some more of the stories on that. And then uh, we also have on Drew Plissett, who's the executive director out at SAMSAT. That's the uh, acronym we may use a few times during the program about the museum. And uh, Dale Bracey, who's working with Drew out there on all sorts of interesting projects uh, to help expand everyone's knowledge of all the things that are going on here in San Antonio about science and technology. So if you stick with us, you'll learn all about this. If you aren't going to be able to stay on the radio, the rebroadcast of this will go up on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com on Tuesday, August the 14th. So uh, look for it on our website, YouTube, or on your podcasting services, and you can catch up with us later. So David, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to come out and join us in a actually really see me a couple of days in a row here now. Thank you so much for inviting us. Yeah. So where was the the idea for this museum, and then how did the whole thing get started? I guess the idea of the museum uh, was kind of a long time coming. I've been a museum advocate myself for my entire lifetime, I guess. Uh, So uh, the collection just spontaneously grew over years, and it, it contains some interesting artifacts that were San Antonio's technical history, uh, in particular, uh, the data point artifacts. The, the first desktop computer that was ever built on the planet is, was in the collection and some other items. So I'm gonna, I'll pause you and interrupt okay. for a little bit on this one because I, I know some of the story. I worked at, at Rackspace at one point in time. We worked out of the data point building, and this was even, I'm a tech guy, and the first time I had heard about Data Point Corporation was when we went into this building. I was like, what did this company used to do? And what David just said, that the first personal computer, he doesn't mean the first one after somebody in Silicon Valley made a personal computer. David really means the first personal computer. So can you share some of the background of the Data Point Corporation for the, the folks out here? Because San Antonio, while we've got this kind of tech rebirth going on and lots of talk about cybersecurity and the tech block ecosystem and, and other things going on in San Antonio now, we've been doing technology things here, very interesting, innovative stuff for as long as you've been around San Antonio. Absolutely. The Data Point story began in 1968 when... Uh, Two gentlemen, Austin Roach and Philip Ray, were looking for their next career. They were both uh, working on the Apollo space program, and they realized that uh, many of the 400,000 engineers and scientists working on that program were going to be out of, a, out of a job when the astronauts made their last mission to the moon. So uh, they asked around what they should be doing and thought about it and decided to start a company to build a computer terminal, computer terminals were brand new in in that era. Yeah, and that so that was founded here in San Antonio. That's correct. Yeah. It was on Rhapsody Drive close to the airport when they got started. 
and s local San Antonio investors, uh, including Joe Frost Jr., were very instrumental in getting the company financed here in San Antonio, and they were also very insistent that it be in San Antonio. Yeah, it's it's uh, not new. That's going all the way back to 1968. We've had some other folks uh, on the program as well talking about some of the cybersecurity things that have started here, the Wheel Group, which eventually was uh, acquired by Cisco, and and many stories over the years, but this the data point one, I mean, really kind of sets the, the beginning stage all the way back in 1968 for the city and what we would consider now doing high-tech stuff. Exactly. Data point grew from 1968 to its apex, which was in the 1980s, and employed over 10,000 people. Uh, so it was a major tech employer in San Antonio. So you have this personal computer and these other items you've been collecting now for, for quite a while uh, with the, the goal to get a museum going at some point? That wasn't the initial goal. Uh, the initial goal was just to preserve the history. But as more and more people learned about these artifacts in the collection and came to look at it, the suggestion was made, you know, we really need to tell the story. It's a San Antonio story. It would be inspirational to the tech entrepreneurs and students in San Antonio to know that that we do have a legacy of uh, important tech development. So I started asking around and looking in other fields and, and started realizing that it's not just personal computers that were pioneered here. There are many medical technologies, the the cardiac stent and, and early work on artificial hearts, uh, LASIK surgery research, were all done in San Antonio, plus all the great work that's done at Southwest Research and our other higher learning institutions really have a major contribution to, to tech. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, it's interesting. Yeah. Our, our biotech and medical devices have goes all the way back as well. So it's interesting for me to see how, like how unassuming you say the heart stent, like this little thing, like that, that saved millions, millions of lives that for, uh, cardiac problems and for, uh, that stuff has started invented here in San Antonio and, and productized here. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, we we have a long roots as a maker city. We've been it's been interesting. We f we forget those pieces. So the museum's been really great in the sense where it's proof in the pudding of our origins. So you you started preserving all of these, and then folks started hearing that you've got this collection of of stuff, and we should get it out somewhere to tell the story. So you're uh, this is is going along now, and 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 so how does this end up at Port San Antonio? I guess the turning point in the story was probably when Judge Wolf came over to look at the collection. He'd been hearing about the data point items, and of course, he was involved with data point in his various official city capacities. Yeah. And uh, he looked at it and he said, David, why in the world don't you make a museum and, and tell the story about the data point history to the rest of the city? And at the same time, I was interested in. I guess helping students get exposed to technology. There are so many children that uh, are talented, but they're not motivated yet to uh, yeah. pursue technical per careers. So I thought, well, if they could see our history here in San Antonio and see that San Antonio, you know, young startups here in San Antonio can make it big and can make a difference in our world. And if they also can see some of the the cool science, if you will, that's really fun, yeah. uh, it might make a difference in their lives. So we did a little prototype in a, in a building that I had out on IH-10 of a museum setup, and uh, Mr. Jeff Wyatt of the 
museum practice here in town, helped us arrange the artifacts to kind of put it in a story order. And we uh, did some pilot programs by inviting school groups over to go through the museum. And it was really, I shouldn't call it a museum then, to go through the, the collection. And it was really uh, exciting to see how they responded and how the parents were excited about it and, and the teachers as well. Drew and Dale, so we're kind of getting down the path to museum. Where where do you guys get involved uh, with this? So it's been interesting. So I've had a love of collecting things for a long time also. So I call myself a hoarder because I collect every gadget under the sun and scrap everything under the sun. And so I've and I've loved I've loved devices and been involved in devices. Uh, and so San Antonio, one of the things that I've been seeing for a long time since I've been here is that at our heart we're we're still a maker city. We're set we're prime for makers and manufacturing and other things. So I've been pushing for a while to help try to get some of the maker community on the ground here. There's been some great people before, uh, before here, and Dale's been working on this for a long time. And so we've longer than I've been here. Dale's been working on the maker city side of things. So. Um, together we kind of combined and Dale and I've been working together for a couple of years on the maker projects and our belief has been you know we have a lot of amazing talent here in San Antonio we just need to grow them and give them access to resources and tools so they can realize their potential and so Dale have been working on that and then met David a couple of years ago and we've all we just all kind of we've had the same mission the belief and the same love of things and the same and the same passion for the city and and the items and so it's been it's worked beautifully in the sense where We've all three um, been able to complement each other and um, help each other in a way that it's been crucial to moving things forward. And so it's, it's been exciting. And um, David's passion, love and things is wonderful. I mean, a uh, quick story on this, that how he said he's been collecting for a long time. I'll give you an idea of this. The other day we were in the warehouse going, <laughs> looking at artifacts. Is this the nail story? Yes, the nail story. So one of the artifacts, one of his, his ninth grade science fair project with the movers had actually broken a piece of it. So he was, we were putting it back together, and he's like, oh, hang on a second. So he goes in the back, digs around for a second, comes back out, and has the original pack of nails he had used in ninth grade to build that <laughs> with. So it's, it's, it's a long story. It's interesting. So, um, no, we all – so it's been wonderful working together and connecting. So Dale and I for several years now, and now with David, it's, like a, it's my dream team to be with, and I enjoy every day being able to be down there and work with these guys, so. A uh, similar story. I have a I have a background of collecting and hoarding things too. Not quite to the extent of either one of these fellows. But well, uh, how many cars have you owned at oh one man. point in time? No, just the the peak. Ever, the, no, not currently. Just the, the peak number of cars you owned at one at one point in time. I th- maybe fifteen. I think I'm down to nine right now. Okay. Yeah. So when he uh, says not to the extent of Drew and David, Dale's a collector as well. Bigger things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, series of different computers bit different bits of hardware and this and that i mean my my interests are very quite eclectic um artist by original trade uh so i have a lot of that type of stuff too but um it's all over the gambit and you know a, a lot of this started years ago so i moved out here in 07 you know moved here for rackspace for my you know and and 
met Drew about, I don't know, what, five or six years ago. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of my, my outreach and giving back was through Rackspace, Rack Gives Back. I mean, we, we had, that was a thing that we had instilled in each other is to give back to the community. So that kind of spun off and we started doing more things and I, I kind of made a name for myself of the, you know, always willing to help others type thing. So we met at one of the first, probably the second tech block ever and had had a conversation struck it up and it was very similar vision we wanted to produce a kind of a space for to support and help each other so then we started years later working on the do lab and that's when that kind of came down the pipe uh, we were trying to grow into a much bigger thing co-working for manufacturing stuff like that and and community support and met david and it kind of just all synced up and went from there yeah so uh, for those hearing about Tech Block for the first time, uh, it's a, a tech organization here that tries to help uh, folks make connections and meet each other, but then also help um, put together a voice of a tech community to enable San Antonio to be a tech-friendly and tech-forward city. Uh, there's monthly events that are free to attend. Uh, if you're a Tech Block member, they usually give um, some stuff to you on each uh, time that you go out. Uh, so you can look them up um, on Facebook, uh, Twitter. They've got a website. Uh, it's Tech Block, B-L-O-C, uh, on there. So a great organization. And, and this is an example of, I think, some of the things that have been uh, – coming back together because if you go back to like that data point example david they those engineers met each other at uh, nasa working on the apollo project um in that collision of, of people that come together and then have a, a passion to go work on something else like the, the more ways that we can create these collisions whether it's with kids or adults uh, sets us up for uh, the next thing to get founded here so or adults helping kids. Yeah, or adults helping kids, yes. So uh, you're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio, and I'm joined this week by David Monroe, Drew Plissett, and Dale Bracey, uh, who are uh, working together on the San Antonio Museum of Science and Technology. We're telling some of the histories and stories there. If you just joined us on the air, you can listen to this on the rebroadcast on Tuesday. It'll go up on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com. If you are listening on uh, your favorite podcasting service or through YouTube or one of those other channels, thank you for joining in, being a listener. Uh, please uh, give us a shout out on Twitter, Facebook, let us know, and we will uh, work to get that guest in the program. If you would like to be a guest, uh, we've got a forum on our website where you can uh, contact us, or I think you can just even email show at cybertalkradio.com. So, David, I know we bounced around here a little bit, so I've, I've interrupted the story of how did we get SAMSAC going? So, you were talked to the Judge Wolf, uh, and he's like, this stuff needs to be in a museum, and you set up the spot up on. Uh, I-10 is kind of an, ex uh, I'll call it an exhibition, and have brought some folks through. They were really thrilled of like, wow, this is amazing stuff. It needs to be in a, a, a another sp a space where it's permanently out there. So uh, how did you make the connection with Port San Antonio and end up uh, in the, the place where you are now? We put together an advisory board that uh, believed in this mission and wanted to see it happen. So the advisory board uh, started putting out feelers uh, in the community. And we started inviting more and more people over to, to look at the collection and bounce the concept off of them. And I honestly don't remember who made the connection to Jim Pershbach at the port, but I remember the day very well that he came out and looked at it. He was very quiet, walked around and looked at things, listened to the stories and nodded his head a little bit. And, uh, and then after the tour, he said, we need to have you at the port. 
Yeah. So that's how it all started. There you go. Yeah. And, uh, Jim is uh, wonderful. He's been a guest on the program, um, and I could not be happier uh, that he's now a CEO out there uh, full-time and uh, got a great vision for what's going on, uh, the Project Tech um, that just uh, is got a couple of uh, big cybersecurity announcements out there um, nearby where the museum's at and much more uh, to come in that area. The vision, as you guys are talking about San Antonio being a maker city, Jim talks quite a bit about the idea of, of combining the aerospace advanced manufacturing and the cyber all together to it's kind of a unique mix of ingredients for san antonio as a city and really a unique mix of ingredients for the the port and uh, as you you think about this and listening out there and you go well is this really credible or is it just a few guys out there that know some cyber stuff and have some maker things and whatnot so for high level idea of how good the people are out there at the whole port at a macro level um, this has been publicly announced now uh, but air force one undergoes its maintenance out there at the port and so they're taking care of that airplane for the the president and all of the electronics and all the cyber defenses and all the everything that have to go into air force one somebody out there uh, knows how to do all those things and is taking care of that stuff so i don't think it gets any better at the combination of aerospace and cybersecurity than uh, being able to put that airplane together and, and make it do all the things that it can do that we will never know about unless we run for that office. So you, you've transitioned, that, David, from the space at, at I-10 down to the spot where, where SAMSAT is at now uh, in Port San Antonio. Correct. Yeah. And so when did that get, get opened up here? Uh, we opened about a year ago. Uh, it was a s- soft opening because we were still arranging exhibits and still moving things. We're still moving things to Port San Antonio. Constantly. And, and <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so initially we, uh, we opened and, and held classroom experiences and museum tour experiences for the school districts and school children. And then about four months ago, we started our SAMSAT Saturday program where we're open to the public. Uh, and, and, and what's, what's the price? Uh, currently, it's free admission. To there you the, go. So you can go over and on Saturday, see all this amazing stuff, expose your kids to um, the wonders of, of innovation, science, and technology, and it will cost you the, the gas to drive yourself over there, but no admission ticket prices or anything else, and you'll uh, have wonderful folks there to uh, help you experience this for the, the price of free for right now. So take well, advantage of it out there. Donations yeah. are graciously welcome. Yes, we yes. have a lot of things in the pipe. We have there's free parking out there also, and so that makes it nice. But we definitely we're all of us are unpaid, and uh, the museum, David's pushed a lot of pocket. But we don't have wealthy benefactors. We don't have any of those things. So donations would be greatly appreciated. Yeah, the the current uh, display we call the preview center because it's a it's a very nice taste of the future museum to come. Uh, we envision adding more areas of technology to the museum. For example, right now our um, scope in biomedical is limited, and we're, we're working on developing our cybersecurity exhibit to make it much larger. But uh, it's definitely growing, and a lot of, a lot of uh, work is in progress right now. 
adding some interactive things for the kids so they can see we're going to we want to start putting together some Saturday programs so when they come in when the parents are touring the museum they can also the kids can go out and play with some drones they can learn about Tesla coils there's some um, we've been working with Robotics Club USA so they can do the um, Lego robotics EV3s there's some neat programs working on too on top of the exhibits to really make it a fun family interactive and later adding uh, local showcases yeah so the the I'm going to call them lightsabers um, so the, if the, ki- the kids come out with the, the Tesla coils, they can wield a lightsaber. Yes. Or, yeah. Please don't fight with them, though. No. Yeah, you don't get to, to bang them together. That would not be good. <laughs> you would you would break them. They are glass. So there's uh, it'll be exciting to see the things that come. And so with the innovation um, team, with the innovation pieces we have going on with the port and some of the spaces, but we, we're really pushing also to make it a collaborative space for engineers. You have amazing organizations like Geekdom and other things in, in San Antonio, but we, we feel we can also help to be a place where not so much for your startup or other things like that, but a place where engineers can connect, work together, see some of the exhibits, get ideas, and help move each other forward on top of the STEM programs, or as Dale and Dave like to say, STEAM, <laughs> so with uh, add art to there. Um, but I think it's a... I think we've got some amazing things coming forward. There's art and engineering. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. No, you, you, it, all breakthroughs require some level of creativity, which is what art is. Even if it's going to be mathematically sound, uh, it still requires a leap of faith at some point in time. Oh, yes. If you look at engineering, I mean, every discipline of engineering uh, has a form of art in it. And, and the people who are the most creative approach it like an art. You know, a circuit right. board that is well laid out is a piece of art. A piece of software that is well structured is a piece of art. Speaking of that, let me just tell you that I have discovered in the art in the archives David's old uh, circuit board uh, diagrams, how they used to do it back in the day by hand. And that was an art in its own. They would actually lay it out on a big piece of vellum and paper with some stickers, cut it all out with razor blades, take a photo of it, shrink it down. I mean, it, it, is, it is art. I can't wait to put it up, but it is it is art in and of itself. Integrated circuits are the same. Yeah, Dale. you know all of the the circuitry in the first microprocessor, uh, the the eight thousand eight, was all done on ruby lith, and every transistor, all three thousand and ninety six transistors, were cut out with an exacto knife. Yeah. So one of the, this this brings to the point that so what you see now at the museum is just a small percentage of the exhibit. It's probably two percent of all the, the material that there is to exhibit and all the pieces they have to exhibit or we have to exhibit at the museum. So that on top of the programs and other things, there's still a lot of amazing things like Alexander Graham Bell's first prototypes for the his phone. There's um, you know the uh, original Edison light bulbs. There's the Enigma machine. There's amazing pieces that you'd usually have to fly to and go see over in the Smithsonian or over in um, California at the computer, um, computer Museum over there. And instead of having to go to Palo Alto or Washington, you can see them right here. Yeah. So you're listening to CyberTalk Radio, and we've uh, been telling a little bit of the story of the San Antonio Museum of Science and Technology uh, with the team there uh, in the first half of the program. If you'll uh, stick with us here through a news traffic and weather update at the bottom of the hour, I think we'll uh, go into some more detail about some of the specific pieces that are out there, some of the stories behind those. And then uh, where's the museum going from here? And uh, by the way, if you uh, out there and you did want to contribute and uh, help them set up a San Antonio Museum of Science and Technology Foundation that could fund this on into the future, uh, they will answer your phone call uh, because this is one where 
there's lots of good collaboration going on, but to really uh, turn this into the vision that everyone's desired, we'll need to come together as a community and uh, pool some funding sources here together to make all that happen. So we will be uh, right back with CyberTalk Radio and the San Antonio Museum of Science and Technology team. Welcome back to CyberTalk Radio. Um, your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. And I'm joined this week by David Monroe, Drew Placette, and Dale Bracey. We're uh, working together on the San Antonio Museum of Science and Technology. And uh, as we were chatting during that news traffic and weather update... Uh, you guys have a, a much bigger uh, vision than just a, a museum. We were talking about some of that at, at um, during that break. Can you share that with the audience? I think it was a really good conversation we had. Great. Thank you. Yes, we've been developing a concept uh, along with the Port of San Antonio to uh, build an innovation center. And under one roof, we would have the museum, of course, which is kind of the cornerstone. But we'd also have... Uh, an e-STEM arena where we could hold STEM events and STEM competitions like robotics and, and drone competitions and so forth. We'd have makerspace. We'd have a, a, a industry center where industry could showcase current San Antonio technology products that are being developed and manufactured in San Antonio and also have uh, uh, meeting rooms and classroom space for the educational activities. That's interesting. So I wanted um, David start talking about the um, East Team Arena at first. I I didn't realize all the value and everything else in it. I I saw the makerspace and those are pieces how, as be, and the museum obviously is being extremely valuable. But the more I've learned it, the more I've looked into it. It's an amazing industry right now. I mean, they're doing extremely well, and the kids, even my kids, are super excited about it and dale has had so many people um reaching out to him about wanting to do the east stem arena and some even some media organizations wanting to live um live broadcast from them yeah so it's it, that i didn't realize and see all the potential in it and david was right again as being he's all, always ahead of things and so <laughs> um it, it is definitely a really cool area to go into i think it'll be it'd be a huge impact to san antonio yeah, I mean, I think with that, with uh, Debbie Fitzmaier, who talked to founded Youth Code Jam, and, and she's seen that grow to numbers that she did not believe was possible when uh, when she initially got that up and launched. So I think that 
there's a, a huge hunger out there for kids to be able to have access to these things and to be able to um, compete in this is uh, with uh, Cyber Patriot in San Antonio. We have more Cyber Patriot teams here than any other city in the U.S. And um, it's a team sport, by the way, for cybersecurity competition. Your um, son, daughter's uh, middle school or high school should have a team. If they don't, uh, you can reach out to a Cyber Texas Foundation, and um, they're a good point of contact to help your administration get one up and going. But same thing with uh, this, this STEAM and the E-STEAM arena and, and this idea of uh, working together in teamwork to use science and technology. Kids want to play and do this mm -hmm. stuff more than they want to play football a lot of times these days. Well, look at the FLL and the, what is it, FRC, the robotics competitions. I mean, the, some sometimes their events get to, you know, stadium-sized competition when you get to the regionals and, and finals. Exactly. And there's a few uh, school districts here in San Antonio that don't even have space or access to their local uh the, the the local competition where they're gonna you know go to, even to get to the finals. I read an article about um, well Deborah, my wife sent it to me about uh, how um, universities now are offering forty thousand, fifty thousand dollars scholarships for top gaming students. They're trying to recruit those top gaming students. So it's it's interesting that piece. So you have the universities, and not only that, it's a great way to interact with the, for parents to be able to interact with their kids. They can it's they can play together. They can do other things together with those. So it's yeah, it's it's, a, it's another tool to mm -hmm. to bring uh, children and young adults into an environment where we emphasize how important science and technology is and give them the tools that they can experiment in that area and build things. You know, hands-on construction is so important. I, I, you know, I started doing that as a child. That's actually one of the motivations for putting together a makerspace and introducing children because I, I got so much pleasure uh, dreaming up some idea and then actually building it. Uh, and it's you can learn so much by taking a project from an idea all the way through to a working device. Yeah. So uh, we uh, had promised those that did stick with us through the break that we were going to talk about some of the uh, interesting items in the collection. So I'll uh, segue us uh, here for a moment over. We had mentioned the, the Edison bulbs. So I mean I can I can go over and I can get an Edison bulb now at like uh, one of some of the the fancy. Um, furniture stores uh but the edison bulbs that you have in the collection are not edison bulbs from some fancy furniture store right we'll call so, those edison like bulbs <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, could share with with our, our listeners uh like what is an edison bulb and what are the history of the some of the ones in the collection edison was uh the person that put together the team that really made the first practical light bulb there were a lot of people working on making light bulbs in that day but his team experimented with over 6,000 different materials for filaments and also experimented with the vacuum pumps that it took to get the oxygen out of the bulbs to make the bulbs work. So in our collection, we have uh, some bulbs that were from Edison's Menlo Park, New Jersey Research Laboratory. They're all hand-blown, hand-made, hand and some of them are really interesting. We have one bulb that used uh, bamboo as a filament. They they baked the bamboo in an oven to carbonize it and then made a filament out of it. And the bulb that's the most fun has a carbonized horsehair from the tail of a horse as its filament. And they even have stickers on them that, with the handwriting as they were doing the prototypes. Edison or 
one of the engineers there was actually uh, it has the original handwriting and everything on them, which is an amazing piece. You can see something that that was actually touched by the Tim team at Manila Park, which is just a, such a cool piece of history. Yeah, I mean, I I love that one and that story from the. It, it's a great way that kids can understand the scientific experimentation process because it, it wasn't just that they uh, went and figured out um, what the perfect alloy was to make a light bulb filament out of in a with and then built one light bulb and then there it was they did thousands and thousands of experiments with the examples you have like bamboo and horsehair and all sorts of things until they figured out a filament that we have in our light bulbs now you can leave that thing on for i don't know 10,000 20,000 hours they seem like they last a long time now right actually the whole history of lighting is quite fascinating uh, it's not just electric lighting in the light bulb but it's a whole continuum of research that uh, made lighting. For example, you know, there was a time that we went from campfires and torches to candles, which was the first manufactured lighting, and then to whale oil lamps, and then to kerosene lamps. And kerosene made some of the wealthiest men in the world back in its era. It was, you know, kerosene lamps were high tech uh, back then, just the way, you know, iPhones and and laptops are now. Yeah, I mean, I guess we yeah, we're we're headed away to where the uh, another fifty years from now, filaments will be things that will only be in a museum, and we'll we'll be running all LEDs, um, mm -hmm. just much more energy efficient. Um, don't they don't create the heat uh, byproduct as, as well either? Well, I guess that's a good opportunity to take just real quick the how we segue the the artifacts into multiple directions, right? Like while light bulbs were a transition into a different lighting technology along the way that whole kerosene story converts into also how gasoline and combustible the combustion engine in cars came along right so that, that's right so we we like to tell those stories of the museum too is how things cross pollinate or cross create along the way now history repeats itself and that's true in technology as well so you can see entire you know massive uh, technology waves that that have been replaced by the next generation technology. Yeah, no, that Dale, that cross uh, pollination that you were talking about, that uh, Bell Labs set up in in New Jersey, uh, they were one of the the first research centers to put um, researchers from different disciplines in the same hallway, and they were working independently on different projects, but they would end up having conversations with each other, walking down the hallway to and from their office, um, on right. their way to lunch, and it, it created some of these collisions uh, where you ended up with a physicist and a chemist and a and an electrical engineer all in the same hallway and you fix things and, and figure stuff out and then all of a sudden we've got a we're going from vacuum tubes to this integrated circuit transistor thing and that's what we hope to cultivate with all this too and i, I believe jim even talked about that on his show with you is how you know there's these really keyed in silos here where everybody's great expertise multi multi-doctor in different areas multi-phd but if we could have an area where they can all bump into each other and collide and, and, and collaborate on the next big thing, that would be even much greater. One of the things we really want to push to with the museum is to, and uh, the innovation centers we push forward, is to help drive collaboration between the ecosystems. We have a lot of amazing things coming up in the city, such as the Epicenter and um, Velocity Texas and some of these other areas coming up. And and with Geekdom and um, other organizations, we, we really want to push is to help find areas where we can 
help grow all those. So instead of trying to do things that they're doing, we want to do areas that they're not doing and try to drive, help grow the people that, so they expand out into geekdom. So they get the skills they need and they go start a startup at geekdom or they get, they get some basics uh, with the startup and they move over to velocity or, or if they're at velocity and they need access to resources and other things that we have, they can see the history, they can understand and do some of the engineering there. So we want to try to tie these ecosystems together and we want to work with, um, the via like Houston has is try to get a, um, a shuttle like they have in the business district between all the different ecosystems here. So it helps bring that cross pollination across, uh, you know, and growth that you have. So that when you have that type of environment. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to the uh, expansion plans that UTSA has for their downtown campus to, to move some more research that would kind of, if you mm -hmm. talk about Epicenter and uh, Velocity's plans over on the east side of downtown and, and with uh, the port out on the west side of downtown, um, that whole corridor kind of east to west here through the, the downtown area can become a real uh, innovation zone and uh, lots of cross-pollination going on. Uh, so, uh, yeah, exciting stuff uh, headed out in our future. So um, out at the mu museum as well right now in the, the showcase you have set up, so there was a, a big desk there uh, <laughs> uh, by the kind of main doors. What's the, what's the story with that piece, David? That desk is a replica of the Resolute desk, which uh, Presidents Carter and Reagan used. We have it there because we have switchboards that Carter and Reagan used, uh, manual switchboards that they would take on Air Force One as they traveled around the world. And when they'd land, they'd set up those switchboards in the White House Communications Agency, then would patch all the presidential calls through those switchboards. So we have the desk, we have uh, 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 WACA, White House Communications Agency, radio system on the desk, and, uh, and a red phone that has the Audubon dialing that went into the DOD switchboards and so forth, all on display there. Yeah, so this is, uh, uh, we could go on for, for hours um, about all of the, the different things that are um, out there at the museum. So how did you end up with those switchboards? Because uh, this is one, so I want to get some of the stories while the, the folks have a chance to hear from you. Like, yeah, How do you stumble into White House switchboards and communication gear? Every artifact has a story, just yes. like every person has a story. And those were in a collection that AT&T Pioneers Organization had built over the years. And I guess AT&T had cut back on the space for their museum. So they ended up auctioning off the... Uh, the artifacts in that museum, and I bought them on an online auction. There you go. So uh, it's an interesting one. Yeah, so AT&T would be the ones that were, they probably built those and designed them and manufactured them. Because, uh, yeah. They, Absolutely. Yeah, Western Electric yeah. built them. And, uh, yeah, the, the name on that one goes back, as we think of just about innovation, American Telephone and Telegraph. Um, so they started off as a telegraph company because the telephone was this brand new wave of technology when that, that business came up to, to existence. The telegraph preceded the telephone. The yeah. Alexander Graham Bell did his experiments on uh, transmitting audio signals, voice signals over telegraph wires. That's another fascinating story. If you study the history of, the, of texting or the telegraph system, you'll, you'll find that it started out with Morse code and then the, the first keyboards were developed so you could send text messages over telegraph wires. And then they started, they designed machines to send handwriting and facsimile over telegraph wires. Then uh, alarm systems were put on the telegraph systems. Uh, audio was, music was put on the telegraph lines. 
So David we, likes to call it the telegraph of things. The telegraph of things yeah. happened a hundred years before the Internet of Things. So it's just absolutely fascinating to study how all of that developed. And then how we started all over again with the Internet. It started out two supercomputers transmitting data, and then we added text to it, and then we added voice. It's the same story all over again, except for using Internet protocol now rather than telegraph wires. Yeah, much quicker these days. You can send things back and forth. <laughs> right. Yeah. So but, I like to say that, that there will be no Internet in 100 years. Right. And I have no idea what it will be, but it won't be the Internet. It'll be something new that's new and better. Yeah. Oh, so it'll be, be fun to watch the evolution because I think, yeah, the Internet's not going to scale interplanetary with its current design very well. So uh, I think 100 years from now, if we're not on Mars, a number of companies that are trying to innovate and get our, get our way there um, will have failed. And I think at least one of them will be successful. So Well, it'll be a repeat again, along with the same story. Things repeat. We had sneaker net back in the day, so it'll be rocket net. You know, you we go. can put some stuff on a rocket. We're going to throw it out there. The data is going to get there. They're going to upload it. And then, you know, maybe some of them make it. Some of them don't. And yeah. So when I was uh, out at Samsat recently, I saw the, the geek bus from uh, Systemic in the, the parking lot. So are That's right. you, you all collaborating together? Absolutely. Uh, Systemic is one of our close partners. They, they have uh, operate the geek bus, of course, and they also operate programs within the museum setting. So they have an interface with the school districts and, and bring children in and, and have a program that studies the museum artifacts and then has classroom work. Yeah, so if, if we've got parents out there listening, they can bring their kids in on Saturday, give you a, a donation and, and tour the museum on the Saturdays where you're open. But if they, if I've got school administrators out there listening or teachers saying, man, this is something that I need to expose my class to, uh, how do the school districts reach out to you guys? They reach out to Systemic and uh, s schedule a, a visit. Or they can e also email the museum at info at samsat and, um, org, and we'll be glad um, we'll be glad to work with them and connect with them. So also if they uh, if you have private tours, I'm down there most days of the week. And so if there's time, if somebody would like to come out for a private tour that can't come out on the weekends or other things like that, Feel free to shoot us an email, and we can schedule private tours. Also, we'd be glad to work with y'all on that. So, organizations, um, groups, or individuals, feel free to email us and let us know, and we'll see. And we'll, we'll work with you to see what we can do. So, with uh, this systemic partnership, uh, what type of, of camps or experiences do the will the kids have as they they come out for a, a day or a field trip to the museum? Well, we have things going on, like Robotics Clubs USA has been an amazing organization that's been working with us. And so they, this summer they did a um, the Lego camps, uh, the Lego Robotics camps, and they're looking at in the fall and Saturdays doing some mini camps where the kids can come out and they can do different things. Um, with, uh, with Systemic, they have some different programs going on. They're using Microbit and some other devices so that kids can learn. And then we're working, we're, we love working with other organizations and collaborating with other organizations. And so if there's uh, other nonprofits out there that we can partner with or get involved with, we're definitely, we want to work with them and see what we can do to help move things forward and get exposure to the, um, not only the museum, but also to their organizations. There's a wonderful opportunity for the nonprofits, the STEM nonprofits, to work together and leverage each other's resources. You know, for example, the uh, STEM STEAM learning ecosystem is being set up by uh, 
primarily spearheaded by the Hispanic Chamber and Dr. Rudy Reyna. It's an amazing opportunity. San Antonio applied and, and won, if you will, a competition to join the national international ecosystem. So that's bringing a lot of focus on San Antonio's tech community, and it's also encouraging us all to work with each other. Yeah. And so this uh, first weekend in August, uh, the Schools Out Hackathon, uh, which we had the SoHacks team uh, on CyberTalk Radio here recently. So if you want to learn more about SoHacks, you can look up on the CyberTalk Radio website at www.cybertalkradio.com or on our YouTube channel or your favorite podcast service and, and hear more in detail about that. So how did you you guys get connected to that SoHacks team and, and get the event set up out at, at uh, SAMSAT? Uh, well, that goes about, that goes back about five years. I, I guess that's my fault. Um, yeah. in a way. Dale's um, been doing this for a long time, working with him from the when, get-go. When, uh, Josh originally was doing SoHacks, he came to us at Rackspace as part of the Rack is Back group. And, um, I had been organizing and helping with a, a event, a annual event called, um, Extra Life that we host. And, um, we've turned it into a giant, full-on event and he wanted some advice he also wanted some help from Rackspace we helped host it there it was a whole conglomeration of things and since then it's grown and the events and I've, I've kept being involved ever since and so they the events get bigger and bigger and you'd mentioned earlier how um, a lot of these things tend to get legs of their own and just take off I mean they're in the spot now where they have some things that they're going to be announcing soon some changes but they're they have outgrown themselves and they are taking off and uh, their events are, are pretty amazing. So yeah. we're now helping them, and Drew and I have since uh, jumped on a little bit on the board. Yeah, so uh, that's great stuff, and uh, just more examples of the collaboration. And as uh, David was saying, so if you are running a uh, STEM-related nonprofit and you were looking for office space and the opportunity to collaborate with others in that office space, uh, reach out to the SAMSAT team. Uh, and then uh, look at uh, maybe coming out there and joining them at the port to uh, foster at that growth of uh, innovation here in science and technology in San Antonio. David, I'm going to circle us back to a, a comment you made earlier a little as we talked about this 8008 processor. I did hear you mention that, right? Correct. Yeah. So I think many folks in our listening audience uh, may have heard of a, a 286 or a 386 or a 486 before, but going backwards from there, this all started back with the, the 8008, and, or am I not learning history? That's correct. It actually goes back before the 8008. Um, I mentioned Computer Terminal Corporation in 1968. So they made a dumb tube, a dumb computer terminal, and put it in production in 1969. They were selling it to other computer companies like uh, Honeywell and Hewlett Packard Digital Equipment Corporation, but every company required a, a change to the electronics. So they got the idea of let's just throw a processor inside of this terminal so we can program the terminal for different requirements. Now this is before microprocessors, so these were computer boards, if you will, that they designed that had maybe 100 ICs on it to make a computer. Kind of what we, we might call that an FPGA today? Uh, no, these were discrete integrated circuits. They were not programmable. So they, oh. were, they were physically wired through this manual layout process to, to build a computer out of AND gates and OR gates and adders and things like that. So it was a very tedious process. But uh, the, the first machine then, the first desktop computer, 
that was built in 1970, the prototypes were built in 1970, it went into production in 1971, used this discrete logic processor, and it had a whopping 4,096 bytes of main memory. So, and I said bytes, not megabytes or gigabytes, 4,096 bytes. So you had to get your operating system and your application program in 4,000 bytes. So the engineers uh, went to Intel and said, we want to put this processor on a chip so they could get more memory into the box. They needed more real estate to put the memory in. And uh, originally Intel said, gee, we're a memory company. Uh, we, do, we don't make processors. Each one of our customers has their own processor. But DataPoint persisted and convinced Bob Noyce, the president of, of Intel, to take a custom engineering job. They called it the 1201 chip initially. 12 meant custom, 01 meant the first custom that Intel did. And they put uh, the DataPoint processor then on a piece of silicon. Yeah, that, that worked out okay for Intel. They've sold a few processors <laughs> that, now. That did, so there was 8008 and then there was some corroboration for the 8080 chip, so some of the data point ideas went into the 8080 chip, and then it was the 8086, which IBM used in their first PC, 186, 286, 386, 486, Pentium, et cetera. Yeah, on now to the Core i9, or whatever it is, seventh generation. They've gone through lots of processor namings, but yeah, the origins of the Intel processor tie back to this, this first computer that you have. So how did you end up with that one in your collection, David? Well, I worked on that. Uh, I went to work for Computer Terminal in 1971 as a summer intern, and they hired me originally as a programmer, um, which is kind of amazing because I really hadn't programmed, but I had to teach myself how real fast. But I had much more knowledge about hardware, so when the uh, chip came in, we also had a processor built by Texas Instruments. So when those chips came in, I had the good fortune of testing those chips to see if they worked. Yeah. That's uh, just another one of all the amazing stories you can learn about. Um, you can meet fellow uh, engineers and build the, the next great idea yourself, uh, getting out there, um, getting involved with the San Antonio Museum of Science and Technology and the uh, innovation center that they are working to grow and build. Uh, so if you want to you can visit them at samsat.org on the web uh, come on out to the port and uh, get to meet the team and become part of the next that could be data point corporation two here in san antonio thank you all for uh, joining us this week and uh, it was a pleasure uh, talking to you